Welcome to a new episode of the Life Science Get Together podcast today with a very special topic that I'm interested in since um, I think it was the mid 90s when the internet was young, it's location-based services and the company we are presenting today is Beacon's Mind. And on the call, we have uh, the CEO of uh, Beacon's Mind, I hope I spell it correctly, uh, Max Weiland. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Chris. Thanks for having me. Uh, let me give a little bit of background where I'm coming from when it uh, comes to location-based service. And then we jump into presenting uh, your company and uh, talking about what's going on in 2021. So it was mid, mid, mid nineties when I started uh, at the University of Graz with my studies. And I discovered the internet, which was fairly young and new. I think it was 1992 or 93 that the CERN Institute in Switzerland uh, put the World Wide Web into the public domain. And also Emerson, Jeff Bezos' company, was uh, pretty young. He started it in 1994. And the year after, um, I wrote my, my first email, which was uh, pretty amazing because I could uh, send a message to the other end of the world. And a second later, uh, it already was read. I mean, back then we had mailings. And uh, at the university, we started discussing and uh, thinking about what can we do with the internet in business. And in a research organization that uh, I was a member of, uh, it's called Evolaris, it still exists. Um, we had glorious ideas what we all can do, autonomous driving, self-driving cars, uh, locating goods in the world, uh, supporting, especially on the consumer side, people when they walk by shops so that they get really specialized offers that they know, okay, what's on in the shop. And we had only one problem. The necessary hardware didn't really exist back then in the 90s. So all these ideas and these visions we had, we just folded it up and said, okay, uh, it will take probably one, two, three or four decades. Um, I then went into merge acquisition and listed companies. And um, I came back to this location-based services and logistics, especially when I started training for Marathon, interestingly. Uh, because uh, measuring the distances in training, knowing uh, how quickly I can uh, I can run 10k, 20k, is key when a person wants to improve themselves. And it was 2011, so it was a couple of years forward. And I thought, isn't there? anything out there on the market. I mean, uh, meanwhile, 10, 15 years passed and the technology must have advanced. Companies like Fantastic and Runkeeper were fairly young still. And uh, when I think back about the first runs I tried to track with um, my app live on, um, it worked, but not very well. And um, since we have the pandemic, it's it's here for one year, so everything I, I, I consider to understand about commerce and how that works and what improvements like Amazon were coming to the world and also all these location-based services that uh, not only improved the life of marathon runners, but also the uh, <laughs> life of people working in logistics uh, completely changed. And I am pretty sure that the shops will reopen soon so what i'm curious about in 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 this episode uh is to talk a little bit about what's possible on the shop level uh 
how can uh, location-based services improve the experience of customers and how can that benefit uh, companies? And I'm very happy to have you here uh, today. Uh, this is my background, where I'm coming from, what I know about. It's pretty, it's pretty, uh, it's pretty basic. Um, Max, give us a little bit of background um, to me and the audience. Uh, where are you coming from? What, what's your background? Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for for this uh, magical introduction. Uh, you had to wait for four years longer in in 2011 to to get a solution that pretty pretty worked out for for yeah. and your purposes. So, yeah, I'm very glad to be here. Um, some some facts about my my person, where I'm coming from. So I'm I'm coming from the media side. You know, I, I did an apprenticeship in in the media in a, in a smaller agency in the in Munich uh, by beginning of the 2000s. So I have like uh, yeah, I have like a feeling for for media. You know, and then I was uh, working for consultancy agencies uh, from Munich to Hamburg, and then in in 2000. Um, 2009, 2010, I founded my first company. It was the Evion Group. And with it's still in business, still operating um, from Europe to China uh, with offices. So still um, in the game. And at this time, you know, when, when the online marketing landscape appeared, um, there were just a few, few people outside there um, that uh, did the management and the consultancy for big uh, companies in different kinds of, of verticals, uh, such as retail, such as the industries, transportation, uh, you name it. And uh, then our idea was um, to to found a company, and we were three of us. We were working for the Scout 24 group, like the holding of, of Finance Scout 24, Job Scout 24, and so on. And we did this for the verticals. And our idea was to build a company that is um, covering the consultancy part as the operational services. So, in online marketing, and, and so the born uh, or the the idea of 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 Avium was born. It was evident in online marketing, so uh, a name in the game. And the funny thing was we were, you know, growing very quickly from 50 to 60 employees. And in, in 2014, then, um, yeah, I, I had the idea of, of Beacon's Mind and then the rest is history. But this is my... <laughs> My my background, yeah, in, in what I did in the past. <laughs> the rest, the rest is history. So this is a nice thing. What is uh, Beacon's Mind doing? What is its position on the market? Yeah, so we are a tech company. We are headquartered in in Switzerland, and um, we provide a solution, a SaaS solution that we offer to retailers to make them uh, open up location-based marketing as a complete, strong new marketing and revenue channel. Um, and bridging the gap between um, the offline, like the brick and mortar business and their e-com business. And we do that with our solution that um, combining that is combining two parts. First, we have the Beacon Swine Suite software. That's our SaaS solution. Um, what uh, we gave the, give the, the retailers access for, they can uh, have a login there with email and password. Um, to to manage the the Bluetooth beacon hardware, which is the second part of our product, and the Bluetooth beacons we use, um, and the, the beauty of it is um, they can be implemented very quickly quickly in the uh, lighting rail infrastructure of any retailer, 
And it's a nearly a plug and play process to use our solution as well. And um, with our solution, we bring more customers into the stores. We have an impact to um, the customer loyalty, the shopping experience of customers, and uh, in the end, of course, um, an impact to the revenues that retailers can can make out of it. And um, our solution is able to, you know, once implemented into the retailer's mobile app, um, to localize customers um, via Bluetooth, via the smartphones, um, next to a store or inside a store. And um, with Bluetooth and our solution, we're then able to track the whole customer journey in store, um, to attract them with local offers that they receive in real time, even they had not the intention to visit the store, for example. And all of these um, location-based data and um, marketing aspects um, can be delivered in real time to the retailer that is using our solution. And that makes it why it's an outstanding, outperforming um, new channel for retailers with data they never had. That's great. I mean, it, uh, it reminds me of some ideas that we started thinking about in the 90s. So one of one of these ideas that probably also got matured a little bit with, with, with me getting older was that when I'm at home uh, searching the internet for a product I need and then I walk uh, through the streets and... Uh, come by a shop that actually has what I need and what I searched on the internet that uh, my mobile phone tells me, hey, wait, <laughs> what you need is right in there and uh, you get this offer here. Is this is, is something like that possible with your solution? Uh, yes, that's possible. I mean, um, as we have the data of the customer, uh, once we are allowed to use it for the customer mm -hmm. um, or for the retailer that is using our solution, we are able to to um, you know, uh, identify the, the visit and purchase behavior of each customer. And so um, the retailer that is using our solution can easily um, send out um, not only local push notifications, but also um, campaigns that really um, meets the, the preferences of, of any customer. Um, based on the last purchase or, or visit, for example, and that makes it so so effectful, you know. And with that, like we we increase like the the frequency um, for retailers by thirty plus percent that um, are using just the app users, of course, because we just can can reach out. Unfortunately, all the customers that have already installed the mobile app, mm -hmm. and um, we have also an impact uh, to the revenues as well because. The customer um, gets um, an approach at the right time once he is next to a store or in the store, and this is something. This is something uh, a store employee would never be able to do, you know, because yeah. that would mean you need like thousands of employees in a store to approach any any <laughs> customer, you know. And and even um, since since COVID hit the, the retail landscape. It's it's just a matter of time where retailers will reduce the front line of, of store employees and needs such technologies that are able to to like having the approach, the local approach in the right time since one of their customers um, is outside the store or inside the store. I absolutely can uh, approve that approach. I mean, I think it's very it would be very beneficial to my life if your solution would be installed <laughs> in, in many shops. I just imagine, I mean, putting together a shopping list with the family and uh, when I start shopping, I get, probably some help additionally where to go, where the best shop is, where the next shop is. Also, 
what I really hate is uh, searching for for goods in a shop. So I need I know what I need, but uh, also maybe a sales clerk is not available because many people are in the in the shops. And then where can I find that? Uh, is it also something that you can tackle with your solution? Yes, we can. Um, I mean, that is something like um, the local approach at the shelf or a different kind. Um, of area in the store, you know, like, um, as you said, like the accessories or menswear or women's wear, whatever you want to shop. And uh, of course we can trigger the, the right offers in the right different areas to let you know where you can find which kind of pieces in the store. But you can also, I mean, um, Bluetooth, you know, um, and that's also an important, I, I want to uh, point to point I want to address. I mean, Bluetooth is a standard when it comes to um, to a local approach to customers via their apps or devices. Because as you, as you know, I mean, Apple is is here a standard. They have these AirPods. They're working with Bluetooth. They have the the Bluetooth chip the beacons inside. Um, when you when you connect to your Sonos device via your smartphone, you also um, use a beacon that is inside the Sonos box. And, and even the free speaking unit in your car is using a, a beacon. So beacons are um, around uh, all of us, you know, um, also in every every device, because otherwise it wouldn't be able to, to approach a customer via, via, the, via the app, for example. And so, yeah, it's it's the only or the most efficient way to, to approach customers via a device, I would say. Yeah. yeah, this is the part that was missing in the 90s, uh, uh, the technology that uh, was rolled out in the last years, Apple and Samsung and all the smartphones around and uh, every device that became sort of intelligent and is wired and with Wi-Fi and Bluetooth. Uh, I mean, what I see in this discussion that we have right now is, I mean, I have many ideas and uh, it's great when I was in research and uh, sometimes I think it's annoying when I work with people to just uh, brush out ideas because all people have ideas and you did something different. So you started executing on an idea. What in your life flipped the switch that you went from, I see that there is a problem. I also could imagine a solution and then I start doing what was what was the event that that made you going yeah i remember very well you know um it was in 2014 and a friend of mine came came from a trip to the us and he he founded um a company in in 5 years ago and sold it to to a big group in in germany and it was also like a tracking technology you know and mm-hmm. and he says hey there is a very demanding topic. It's about physical web. It's like tracking the, the real world. And Apple uh, recently launched um, um, the, 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 the iBeacon technology. You know, that was quite a hype, by the way, uh, in 2015 to 2017. And uh, at this time, you know, I, I was recently moved to Switzerland to, to um, build up the outpost for, for Avium. Um, because we had some clients here and so on. And, and since he, my friend told me that, that there is an, a technology like this outside there, I, I couldn't stop thinking about, you know, of, of, of what to do with that and how to, to make like a product out of it. And so for me, it was, was pretty clear to, to, to make a product out of it and to, to let retailers benefit from it mostly because they have this, this kind of gap, they couldn't connect or um, combine their brick and mortar business with e-com. 
And it was such an aspiring topic uh, these days in, in 2014, 2015. So yeah, that was the, the time I, you know, I decided to, to sell my shares, to make an exit on, on Evium and, and take the money and make, make something, if you still want, more effective, more scalable with a big advantage for, for customers, yeah, for retailers. Yeah, that was the idea. And the time Beacon's Mind was, was born in, in the mind. Yeah. That's that. That's great. That's great. I think it's a, it's a difference to to many people. Uh, to many have ideas, and uh, only a few start really putting it into uh, a useful technology and into a company. Speaking of a company, um, a company is not a one man show. And uh, you also mentioned that uh, you have built a team. Uh, I think this might be interesting for some people that have in mind that they could start a company, but don't know where to start looking for people and co-founders. What was your approach back then? How did you put your first team together? Stay with us. We'll be right back. You love listening to podcasts, but have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Maybe you want to build a brand, grow your business, or are looking for an excuse to talk about your favorite hobby. Whatever your reason for making a podcast, Buzzsprout is the place to start. Since 2009, Buzzsprout has helped over 300,000 people launch their own podcasts. Buzzsprout walks you step-by-step -step through the whole process and will give you powerful tools to start, grow, and monetize your podcast. Ready to get started? Click the link in the show notes to get our free step-by-step -step guide to starting your podcast today. Yeah, um, when I when I look back, you know, it it um, I remember, I still remember, even it's uh, six years ago. But at this time, you know, just to 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 make it understandable, you know, the situation. Uh, once I founded the company, I was still in 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 touch with potential investors, you know, private equity investors. Uh, that I met in, in Zurich these days, and that I told the idea, but they were not like on board from the very first day. Um, uh, with 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 seed capital, you need to grow, especially you want to grow up uh, a tech company, you know. And and later more on that um, because we switched the the business model uh, quite a few times and even the strategy. But uh, to come back to your question, I mean. Mm -hmm. I started with almost, you know, equity capital, like just purely equity, 100,000 Swiss francs I put in um, to, to found the, the company yeah, because in Switzerland, you have that kind of, of company um, that is a, a stock corporation, you know, and uh, that, that means you need to put in a six digit amount, which is quite, quite tough if you didn't make an, an exit before or whatever. And at this time, you know, we we were really low in cash, so that that meant I I don't had like a million investment, and so I couldn't hire like ten salespeople and ten project managers and ten designers or developers to start. So I had to do, I had to be very creative how to use the money because it it was almost just my money, you know, and. You you feel every every Swiss franc, every euro you spend, you feel it in the pocket. You know, there's a lot of skin in the game, as they yeah. say. So uh, I had to do a lot of by myself, like um, with the right people. So I started to to uh, go to my network and I ask. And the very first employee was was Anna. You know, Anna is today our our COO. You know. And and she's in the company since almost six years. And I hired her for Evium 
uh, five years ago. So we are working 10 years together now. But at this time, um, I asked her, hey, can you, could you imagine to move to Switzerland? I have, a, I have an exciting project. And the funny thing is, before I founded the company, I, I, I told her we're on a business trip for Evium. Hey, I think I have a good business idea and, and it, it will be awesome, right? I had no idea where this will, will, will go. But uh, she, she then said, hey, Max, I'm with you. Yeah, I, I will join you if, whenever you ask me. And then I asked her and then, yeah, she joined and moved to, to, to Switzerland as well. She was my, like, she's still today my right hand, you know, in the company. And with with Anna, I did a lot of um, of building the company up. And then um, once we received um, capital from angel investors, we also started to hire a developer and working with freelancers because we we outsourced a lot. Because um, the difficulty in, in in Switzerland is that you have such high salaries, you know, mm-hmm. that you're not able to to have 10 employees from scratch on. I mean, if I found a company in Berlin with uh, equity of 100K, you can easily just employ five five people, you know, and they're happy with the salary and, and they are happy with the vision and that's it. But in Switzerland, where, where <laughs> every second employee has a six-digit income, it, it's not that, that fun, you know, so... Yeah, I understand it completely. It's it's uh, the environment is sometimes a little bit funny. Yeah, yeah. Um, when we talk about starting companies, um, I, I, I work in life science and I'm doing that since 2006 and before in the 90s. I made uh, my first attempts into starting companies uh, on the countryside. Uh, I, I think I, I know very well what you are talking about when it comes to hiring people because the Austrian regulations are also very tough and, and straightforward and strict and not that flexible. Uh, even back then, working with freelancers was not very easy and challenging because basically people needed to be hired and the term freelancer was not so so much uh, accepted in the legal system. Um, I was trained in the 90s and uh, I worked in my merger acquisition afterwards. So the the approach that uh, I learned how to start a company was a very slow and long one, which basically led through a, a thinking process, putting a team together, writing sort of business plan, and then at the end, uh, incorporate the legal shell. When I started working with people from the United States and the United Kingdom, I learned a completely different mindset. Um, they have an idea, they found a company right away. So not even knowing what they are doing. And there was also this interesting term, pivot. Uh, so it's quite normal to them uh, to just flip the strategy, uh, go from A to B and back to A and then to C and uh, fill a re- little bit around. And this was a no-go in the listed companies that I learned basically how to outsource something and build something. Uh, what was your approach uh, in that respect? Did you have a, a clear strategy, a clear plan fleshed out in 1,000 pages before you even started um, the company or did you take more the, the Anglo-American approach yeah i we were more on the on the bootstrapping uh, way to 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 build up the company in the beginning you know because um it's it's not like um the typical um or any company is different right and you can't you can start a, a company just on the paper or a business plan because there are circumstances you can't control right and and the market is one of one of many uh, facts that that matters 
and and so we you know we had the vision we had a clear vision of course um what kind of benefits we want to offer to our clients right and we had a clear focus on on retail landscape as well because in the beginning um thanks to our first angel investors that had a background um in in retail as well um i got very quickly in touch with with bigger retailers such as tommy hilfiger and so um, we figured out like how could our our solution look like, yeah, in the front end. What kind of features we could deliver to a retailer, and and what kind of benefits um, we we should bring to a retailer. And and once we we you know we did all the um, all the funny presentations with the first pictures, and I have still some, you know, in the. Uh, in on the desk. I mean, it's it's funny when you see the evolution of of of, of screen designs you make and features from scratch on to, to status quo. And you know, we started, and this is what I did. I mean, I started very early to sell the product, even the product wasn't there. You know, and um, it it resulted, and I can I can tell now the public. I, I told the Tommy figure uh, afterwards. Yeah, once we 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 signed the contract and did a successful pilot for them um once i had this meeting you know with the, the chief marketing officer i don't know the the euro boss um in 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 dusseldorf for for tommy um i showed him like a slide deck of the benefits we can bring with our solution you know with the beacons and how, how the solution looks like and at this stage you know i i had no software at all you know there, there was nothing but there was the idea and they loved it. And then we negotiated and planned half a year. And in this six months, after the first approach, we developed uh, the software um, with, with freelancers, you know. And, and then we built up like the business model. That means the pricing um, for the Bluetooth beacons we sell, for the installation services and for the, for the software itself. And um, and then it it was a process, a rolling process of on the business model and how it should work and how we could adapt our you know learnings to other retailers and 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 that's what we did in in the beginning. You know, it was not everything based on a business plan. It was more an execution based. You know, based on on real learnings we did with real clients, and that um, was one of the major learnings. You know, because this you can't pay with with money you have to to experience it yeah no absolutely agree to that i mean in a stable environment uh, probably it's 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 possible to sit down and uh, flash everything out but when the environment is dynamic or the technology is new and the idea is new i love that approach to just go out on the market and find out with the customer what they need uh, what they buy into and then start building it's it's a uh, it's, it's a great one um, let's move a little bit forward in your company history. So you started the company and uh, then you developed the company uh, over a um, few years, so five, six years. What were uh, the key milestones in that development that are noteworthy, in your opinion? Yeah, um, when I look back, I mean, I think um, the very first important milestone um, was the decision to become a SaaS uh, company with an own software and and that was not pretty much clear in the beginning you know because in the beginning um we wanted to be a SaaS company but 
um, as I told you, we we a uh, had had no idea to develop to develop a software by ourselves, you know, and and b we had no cash either to develop by ourselves. So uh, the funny story started in in once we were um, or getting the opportunity from one of our angel investors to that connected us to to Hackett London, a, a UK based fashion retailer for for menswear. And they were interested in in what we have to offer or what we can can do for them. And then I also showed them the slide deck and the features um, of 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 things we could do for them. And um, my idea was, you know, for them to partner with um, with a provider out there that is is able to to develop um, a software with us. So it's like it's not a, like a joint venture, but it's like you know. The idea was to 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 partner with them and then having the learnings and building maybe later on uh, software and they they had I mean they hadn't the software because there were just a few providers out there and so my conclusion and learning was then like to build an own software and that was like the the first major milestone the the, the very or the most important one I would say yeah based on a real learning yeah <laughs> and. That's if I think of a second important milestone uh, next to the funding of the company and the trust of, of our first angel investors, um, I could inspire for investment in the in the company, was the, the, the moment um, we received the very first project contract um, from Tommy Hilfiger, you know, in, in 2016. And then quickly afterwards um, from, from the Bollock Guggenheim group, um, which operates the Marco Polo and, and guest uh, stores at that time in whole Switzerland. Um, and, and these both, you know, companies gave us that trust and, and the contract where we could pay the first bills, you know, and, and uh, we were not profitably in, in the first, first year. I mean, uh, with almost no product or very late, later stage in that year, we, we did 150K in revenue. So it was not bad, right? If you think on to the US where they claim to, to <laughs> you build up a SaaS company, you have to first build a product and uh, mm -hmm. that takes five years and afterwards you can start um, having builds, you know, and, and in my opinion, it, it must be quicker. And I, I wanted to earn money with the software because we also bring, bring benefits to retailers. So the, the trust of, of these two like key, key clients was, was also a very important milestone. And, um, I did take a note on that because there are so many more milestones, you know, and I try to to have the essence of the most important ones. The first most important milestone in, in my point of view was um, next to development, the company, of course, the hardware, the software and the proven business model. Um, it was the, the, the trust of all respected client Adidas in 2018. And you see the, the second milestone and the, and the third are are almost the same, right? Because mm -hmm. it's about trust. It's about clients that they gave us that, that trust and and like us as company um, that were able to, to deliver um, benefits to them, you know? And, and Adidas um, came to us in, in 2018 and, and with help of their trust, you know, and we developed our, our collaboration, um, we could build a, a successful... Um, project and that resulted in in a global rollout of our solution in 
means an implementation in in their stores in over 25 countries now. So I would say this is the the very very most important third milestone from my perspective. Awesome! Like I can really I can really uh, relate to that. Uh, no matter how many companies somebody starts, um, I think the the process of uh, seeing a problem and then having a solution in mind that uh, I think it can work is is one of these amazing mesmerizing and magical moments. The second one is putting a team together, uh, no matter what role I'm in. It, it doesn't matter if I'm a CEO or if I'm just an advisor or whatever role, but uh, bringing the idea and the concept of, of a solution into the mind of another person and convince them that it might be a right way is awesome feedback when the first person says, okay, yes, I'm with you. I'm, I'm walking with you. And I think the third one is uh, messing around with the business model, trying things out, uh, especially in the beginning. I mean, it's so easy to see what problems exist, but it's so difficult to find people who not only see the problem, but come with solutions within a team and um, really put this solution to work instead of complaining and say, this is not working and that is not working and that is not working. I think uh, finding executors in the beginning. And then of course, I mean, uh, having customers buying in, but we are talking about uh, solutions and successes, and this is a great thing. Um, I would like to give it a little bit of another turn Uh, have there also been uh, significant problems and hurdles that you needed to overcome to create success? Let's look a little bit on the not so nice side of running a business. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, in in an entrepreneur's life, you you have always hurdles and you you got always challenged, you know, with new situations and and showstoppers and <clears throat> and roadblocks you have to push away push out of the way you know on on the way to building a company and yeah there there were really um, not just a few i mean i mean many of them you know and and to answer your question how how did we or i overcome hurdles with with success uh, or create success i mean um I, I did a lot of mistakes, you know, of course, because we were in a business that we were never been before. Of course, um, I had experience in, in, in consultancy business, sales and marketing, but software development and hardware um, distribution means a completely different thing. So um, there were some some moments we, we have to or hurdles we have to overcome, you know, next to the biggest challenge, the liquidity. I mean, the liquidity is like the the air you breathe, you know, as an entrepreneur. Because without without cash, you you can't you you can't make any any step further, you know, because you can't pay salaries, you can't pay um, for for R and D for the software development, and even for sales, you know, and and that means sales was the most important thing or the the biggest hurdle to overcome to have success. And that means to to identify the right clients over the network with the right people to get in touch with, to to inspire them for the solution we offer. And that was one of the biggest hurdles um, I had. I mean, they have to inspire to inspire people is is if you have the right product and the right approach, is 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 not the most complicated thing uh, um, on earth, but 
if you have no cash, you know, to to pre-finance the development, you know, then you can't make a you can't realize a project. And so I would say to uh, yeah to finance everything was the the most hurdle we had here, and that that set challenges um, every year. Yeah. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Money is all around us, and we think about it more than almost every other aspect of our lives. But how can we make more of it, and what's our drive for building wealth beyond just the numbers in our bank account? Join us on the Make More podcast as our host Matt Heslin brings to you a dynamic lineup of experts in the world of investing, business, health, and beyond. Together, they unpack the secrets to not just surviving, but thriving in today's economy. It's about more than just wealth. It's about crafting life experiences, seizing opportunities, and building a legacy. Subscribe now to the Make More with Matt Heslin podcast and join us every week for new expert insights and inspiration. Yeah, I know that, um, as I said, I'm working in the mostly most of my time in the life science industry and every business plan that I write starts with, uh, we need 1 billion to bring something to patients. So uh, how can we raise that money? Um, and the interesting thing, I mean, I'm in the process of reading this book, it's uh, Principles from, from Ray Dalio. And uh, he points out in his book uh, that entrepreneurs should sit down and always think about uh, what did they learn and what principles did they discover and write them down and publish them. So inspired by this thought from, from Ray Dalio, I want to ask you uh, the question with all your experience you got from starting companies, uh, funding companies, founding companies, building companies, uh, are there some noteworthy principles that you learned and that you think are worth sharing? Uh, yes. I mean, um, to answer this question properly, I'm afraid we don't have enough time, right, for that in our podcast. But, but honestly, I, I learned most of it from mistakes. And, and by the way, I did a lot of mistakes, that, that's for sure, I, I told you. And there is... There is I mean, there is a principle, yes, I would say. And the principle is, you know, to always stick to, to your vision you have and um, setting you goals every day, you know, because building up a company is, is a process. It, it, needs, it needs endurance and um, you need uh, to have a lot of resilience, you know, to um, to overcome all the hurdles. And the principle is just um, stay your ground, you know, like believe in the idea, believe in, that's very philosophical, but to believe in yourself is the most important thing because there is no no other no other person that that can make the the company um, grow. You know, of course, you can grow a company with money, but if you are not working on on goals and not achieving that goals, you can you can't be successful. So um, no one can cover the work you can do, and that means um, stick with it and and work on it every day. That's that's an, uh, that's a principle I've learned. Yeah. Um, great. I mean, I agree to that. Uh, sitting down, even especially in the bad days, I mean, the good days usually take care of themselves. Uh, 
but not every day is a good day when we're all human beings. <laughs> and also I'm better sitting down and working a little bit at least <laughs> towards the goal is uh it makes a difference in the long run. It it uh, like Warren Buffett says, it compounds. <laughs> so it's it's compounding interest. I mean, you you don't, to be honest, right? Um, you you try to make the best out of your mistakes, and um, there are many principles to to like to to write them down, you know, to learn from it. But in the end, you get an instinct for which could be good or or not good uh, or not, you know, going well. Um, because you have you you build a feeling for that you know based on the on the learnings you make and uh, the failures yeah you you have also your your successful moments and your successes but the most you learn is is from the mistakes yeah and I'm not sure if if the author of the book you you read um, did he did he found did he find um, any any company so far or many or where does the experience come from? Uh, Ray Dalio is um, one of the investors that were famous in the 80s. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's quite funny reading his book because it was the time when computers were uh, were young. Uh, also, I mean, some entrepreneurs of these days, Steve Jobs, for example, he did pretty much uh, something that you are doing. He sold software and hardware, like uh, Bill Gates was just on the software side. And Ray Dalio describes in the book... Um, how he he has run how he started working for hedge funds how he started his own fund how he uh messed everything up and uh had to go back to zero and how he learned out of his mistakes and uh this was also the the thing that he mentioned that he learned that pretty much the same what you are saying that through making mistakes he got better And um, also an interesting part in this book is where he says that uh, he puts together a team um, as sort of a meritocracy. So where they um, share basically their learnings and their experiences and uh, where they share also their opposing views of the right solution. And he says uh, the only way to come to the right solution is to listen to the pros and the cons of the team. And not just surround yourself with people who just share your opinion because you pay them. And uh, he basically ran the fund, I think, up to 2009, uh, if I remember it right, and is now a retired billionaire in the United States and uh, continues sharing his his uh, his wisdom like uh, Warren Buffett. Uh, it's a book I uh, highly recommend reading. And uh, he basically invested his money in listed companies. And uh, you also made the decision that uh, at some point, at one point in time, you took your company public. What drove that decision? Um, many learnings and mistakes <laughs> as well. Um, but to be honest, um, you know, in I, and before, you know, I, I explained the process. I, I want to make understandable the situation of startups in our economics here in Europe especially in Switzerland. I mean, if, if you're a tech company in Switzerland, you know, not coming from the fintech side or the, the, the prop tech side or biotech side, it's pretty much tough to, to find investors, you know, uh, not always, but often, you know, um, to, to attract them or inspire them to invest um, um, 10 million, for example, you know, in one financing round. And so 
we did a bootstrapping every year. That means we, we did fundraise every year, almost with private equity, as well as with institutional investors. Um, for example, in, in 2017, um, um, Osram joined the company um, or acquired a minority stake in, in Beacon's Mind based on a strategic partnership that was going on before. Um, and after five years of fundraising, you know, and, and recognizing that we have global demand um, on our solution, and we, we rolled out at this time um, already to, to many countries for, for Adidas, um, among others, um, we recognized that if we want to, to, to have um, a global scale, for example, we need a bigger uh, investment, right? And with that, we were figuring out the and did a lot of research if, if how do we can get this. And one of the um, attractive things was um, going public. You know, of course, there are some regulation regulatory things we have to fulfill or to meet. But in the end, it's a good way to work on a global visibility, you know, and credibility as well by by the nice fact that you have access to the capital market. And you could could even raise higher amounts of of, of, of tickets, you know, to to finance the company, and that's why we decide um, based on the fact of financing, credibility, and and global demand um, to go public. And right now we can see the results, you know, um, without telling you inside informations. I mean, you have seen on the media. We have a way, a way much more visibility than before. So even in that aspect, um, it it worked out, and and so um, it was a good decision in the end. That's great. Now I'm a huge fan of uh, of IPO in companies and uh, giving them more visibility. The I mean, also like investing myself in in listed companies, basically. Um, my opinion. I mean. Uh, it, it was my honest opinion until June uh, last year, then we had Wirecard. Um, but usually listed companies have stricter compliance uh, regulations and rules than not listed companies. And especially when it comes to global businesses, um, I'm still in huge favor of, uh, of, of these principles that uh, listed companies must have a minimum compliance and, and audit processes integrated in the company, which at the end of the day also helps the executives and the founders to keep their companies on track because they get just uh, more feedback into, the, into their decision-making processes. Uh, what uh, is your opinion on the, on the except this visibility uh, which of course stock markets have, but what is your main advantage in your opinion um, when you think about being a listed company? What was the, the outstanding advantage for you? I mean, the outstanding advantage is um, the credibility, right? Because if you have an official share price issue um, and the company is running successful, um, it gives also your retail clients or the, the clients mm -hmm. we approach, the retailers, um, another level of comfort, you know, because they they partner with um, a serious contractor, for example, that is a listed company, so they know everything is is well structured, you know, even in the financial way, um, as as um, in the way of the the corporate governance, I would say, because it takes a lot of uh, things to to uh, that is required to meet you know once you are a listed company or on the way to it because you have to submit a prospectus for example 
you need uh, a different accounting standard. You report your your half year and your financial year results. You know, and all of these pretty pretty things. And um, that gives um, another level of comfort. And even for shareholders, it's a good way because. Um, The shareholders that invested in the beginning, you know, they they get something back from the company. You know, they have a share price issue. They they can trade, um, or they can trade with with the shares on a market. And I think both sides win. You know, um, the company with its shareholders as well as the the clients we approach. Stay with us. We'll be right back. The coaching conversation. 2024. This podcast is 100% dedicated to leadership and leadership within the workplace coaching area. We work with companies throughout the world teaching leaders how to coach their employees. This podcast is dedicated to teaching specific strategies, frameworks, coaching models, and now artificial intelligent strategies to help leaders drive greater teamwork, collaboration, cooperation, greater attitudes, better motivation, coaching career development, just to name a few. I hope you'll check out our podcast. It, it, it's funny hearing that uh, now in 2021 and uh, just thinking back, while you were speaking, you thought back to when I first worked with listed companies, it was the 90s. And um, back then, I mean, um, listed or not listed, The, the usual process was uh, putting together one annual report, uh, mostly nine months after the year end. <laughs> And this is how companies were run. Um, no structured budgeting processes, no monitoring internally, no, no monthly or quarterly meetings. Uh, it was basically one meeting every year to present the annual report. And when I think now, uh, One of the outstanding examples, in my opinion, is uh, a fund from the United States. It's ARC Fund from Kathy Wood. Um, she was last year voted uh, as the best stock picker of um, by Forbes. Uh, she had a return of 200% in one year with her, with her funds. And she's reporting every day what she's doing, what her team is doing, which which companies they buy, they're putting out research reports. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's not only beneficial, I think, also when I think about companies uh, that are listed, uh, they also have quarterly reports and uh, some say it's work, but in my opinion, it really helps to challenge the executives uh, to think about their business day and night and find ways to improve it. Uh, would you agree to that or is it uh, is it more a burden? Um, you know, if you are an entrepreneur by heart, you know, as I am, because I started a company with own money and not just with venture capital um, only, um, it means I have a lot of skin in the game, you know, and and that makes you think automatically um, every day, you know, um, about your decisions, about the future, you know, um, you have scheduled the next week fully, mostly, you know, because you know exactly what you want to achieve. Mm. And if it it it's a different thing if you're just um, I won't I won't uh, like reduce uh, reduce it you know but if you're just a manager like an executive manager like a CEO that is hired or employed by a company 
and you have no skin in the game because you're not a significant shareholder. You just get your salary. I mean, just, yeah, you get a ton of salary, uh, millions mostly, um, especially when you're a managing hedge fund. Um, then it's a different thing, you know, then I would say, yes, it makes sense. It's good for the shareholders to challenge the, the executive management. But for in our case, you know, because I'm, I'm the founder, I'm in the board, I'm, I'm the, the, the major shareholder of the company. Um, the shareholders trust me, you know, because they know I have skin in the game. They know that I'm just doing Beacon's Mind. I found it, I executed it, and I want to make it big now. And, and so there is no need to, to challenge with a daily reporting, for example. Um, so for me, I wouldn't say it's a burden. It's a normal thing, you know, because also the shareholders have right um, to know what's going on in the company. And I'm aware that I'm, even I'm the, the major shareholder right now, uh, it's not my 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 company. Yeah, you know, I'm not the the owner of the company. I I'm working in my um, position as as CEO for the shareholders. You know, for the company. That's my understanding of my job because, of course, it's switched from founding the company as as um, as the only shareholder or one of two or three until the point we have right now, you know, where we are open to the public and I, I don't know the exact number of shareholders. So yeah, so the times change. I'm aware of this. And for me, it's not a burden. Um, there's no need for a challenge. And for an executive manager that is employed, I would say it makes sense. Yeah. Even they won't hear it. <laughs> Yeah, I agree with that. And the last the point that you made that uh, basically you as a CEO uh, are serving your company, are serving the employees and the shareholders, and you are working in the same direction than they do. And uh, in the end of the day, it should also be that way that uh, a CEO is compensated when the others are compensated. So it's uh, the better he's doing his job or she's doing her job, uh, the more compensation is uh, is fine. When when I when I look at your company, I mean, usually I thought. Uh, doing one IPO is sufficient. So you start a company, you get it listed uh, with all the benefits that you mentioned. Um, and that's it for a while. And then I got the information that you are listed on two stock exchanges. What, why, <laughs> why, what was, what was the, in the core of the decision? Yeah. So uh, first of all, um, I, I want to point out, you know, it's, it's, um, it's the result of our strategy, you know, because uh, once we were listed at the, the Euronext stock exchange, um, we had access, of course, to French-speaking um, investors, um, even to the landscape of potential retail clients, because Euronext is in Paris, um, as in other countries and, and capitals, is um, um, a well-known brand, you know, and you have a lot of investors there, even tech investors, but as we are in Switzerland and and Austria seems so much closer to us, um, it it made sense to do a listing also there because um, we have access to a new capital market that means to German speaking investors, so very close to our headquarters in in Switzerland, and it's the market of Austria is is, is uh, pretty much comparable with the Switzerland's markets, you know, in in regarding of the size. So um, much more com um, compatible than than Germany and Switzerland because of the of the size alone, and for us it was um, a way to to reach out to German speaking investors and potential clients, and that was the decision um, 
uh, of us to to also list the company there at the Vienna Stock Exchange. Is that such a huge difference? Where you come from from the company side and uh, just tried to figure out uh, on the side of the retail investor, um, does it really make a difference where the company is listed? Do you do you see such a huge difference in communication in reaching out to parties? Uh, with a dual listing, is that really such an impact? Uh, yes, it has a it has a, a massive impact because you are now in a in a new country, you know, mm. uh, in Austria, um, and you get a lot of traction there as well, you know. And it's like um, it has many benefits, you know, in the ways of of marketing for the brand awareness um, for Beacon's mind. Next to the fact that we are listed there and having access to to the investors. Um, because also Austrian retail brands are now, you know, recognizing, okay, Beacon's Mind is there. Mm -hmm. um, they, they may never heard before of us, but once we have been announced as a listed company in the direct uh, plus uh, market, then we get a lot of more traction than before. So um, from my personal point of view, what I see is I think uh, it, it worked out. Yeah. Yeah, probably you're right. Uh, media attention when you're listed is probably a little bit better. And it's the trust maybe that uh, when you join the community with a listing and uh, the stock exchange trusts your company with uh, allowing you to get, I mean, I think it's, 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 it's not automatically or isn't it so that uh, you just say I get listed and it's done in five minutes. It needs a little bit of work <laughs> to get it done. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And this creates probably trust and uh, the, the human touch, I think, is still important in business, even if uh, when we are living in the, in the, in the Internet world. Um, dual listings, benefits of an IPO. Um, I think this, this, this trust, this, this, this human trust is probably really the best argument why, um, why uh, Not only one listing is sufficient, but also to to spread out in the market, especially when you are working with with uh, with retailers who reach out also to to consumers, and it might also help uh, the consumers like like me to get uh, your brand. When we talk about um, the retailers and the consumers, um, what changes do you see in in the way we are conducting? Uh, this day-to-day uh, -day retail businesses. What will happen in the next 10 years, in your opinion? Uh, the, the, to project the next uh, 10 years, it, it would mean to have yeah, a magic mirror, you know? Um, <laughs> you know what, what happens in just one year, you know? Who had expected this, like COVID? Mm, it's yeah. just one year. And to, to, to project 10 years, um, There are a lot of like technology projections out there, how the market will transform. But in my personal opinion, um, I think um, we see a lot of changes and, and transformations going on there in the, um, in the usage of smartphone devices, you know, in the physical world um, combined with e-com. Because um, bringing both worlds together in, in real time is like the last step to a whole like digital world, I would say, because it's like the last step, you know, to, to bring e-com and, and the real world together. And, and in my opinion, and we, we see it on a, on a few examples, you know, just to mention one, 
uh, Amazon with their Amazon Go stores uh, that are nearly contactless. And by the way, also with, with NFC technologies such as uh, Bluetooth. Um, so in my opinion, we'll see a massive transformation in the physical web environment and and means reaching people locally in real time with NFC technologies, uh, as said, such as Bluetooth. And we will also see retailers that will centralize uh, the user in the middle of the brand strategy. Um, and, and a good role model here is, yeah, our client um, Adidas, because Adidas uh, launched their, you know, own the game strategy recently. And that means they, they put the customer in the center of all of their activities and they want him to, to be on the mobile app, you know, to, to let him benefit from, yeah, the, the gap or the connection between physical stores and e-com. And, and that's why, among others, they, 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 they use um, our Bluetooth beacons, for example, because um, with that centralizing strategy, um, they are always with the client, you know, with the customer. That means no matter he is um, or a customer is visiting e-com, no matter um, he or she is in store, they always have a, a direct local approach to them and they can connect like and building a physical web out of it. And I think this is the, the way it goes in the next maybe five years, you know, maybe we see it earlier. I, I don't know. I mean, nobody knows, but we can, we have feelings right now. We have indications and um, big brands with high brand awareness are going to be offline as well. You know, there are many or tons of examples like Doc Morris, like uh, the pharmacy chain that, that started in e-com and now building a, a huge infrastructure of, of pharmacies on site where people can get their purchases. They, they reserved uh, in the e-com um, right away after a store next to them. And, and this is the way it goes, you know, and if you ask me, I mean, I won't stress it uh, too much because you see it every day in the media, like which, which kind of impact COVID will have and what kind of, of COVID or post-COVID world we were living in. But if you ask me, I think people will be like, they will have a, a complete new level of, of appreciating local stores, you know, being together, shopping around by themselves <laughs> again, not only online. And, and you see it in, in, in the UK, in London, you know, yeah. um, when since the lockdown was 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 um, disappeared, people went outside, you know, um, having party, were shopping uh, as hell and, and that will happen and and they will have a new appreciation level of of of, of local stores. And so, yeah, we see a lot of more technologies even in our um, vertical or, or segment that will appear to make the physical web come true. Yeah. No, this is funny, funny, funny that you're saying that the COVID was, was a huge hit uh, to, to all industries and all people, especially with the lockdowns. And last year, I was pretty amazed how how well organized the world really is. So one of the fears I had uh, when Austria went into lockdown is I was absolutely not prepared, not prepared. So I, I didn't read the newspapers and I was not aware of what was going on. I just did my business and was not expecting something to happen. So I had not uh, bunkered a lot of goods. So I was, uh, where, where can I buy that? So when everything is shut down, uh, I need to replace clothes and uh, running shoes and stuff like that. And uh, I never considered uh, that I would buy that stuff from Amazon. Mm -hmm. 
And this was one learning. I mean, I can buy it on Amazon. I get the cheapest price and I get it delivered right to my door for zero expenses as a Prime member, which, which was a great thing. And then happened what you were, say, what you were saying. Um, social life was turned down to zero. And suddenly, I mean, I always hated going shopping uh, on the weekends, uh, running through shops, trying to find the right things. I mean, your solution five, 10, 15 years ago didn't really exist. So which helped, which could have potentially helped me find the goods quicker. I really hated it. But with the pandemic um, and with the social life turned to zero, I realized that shopping had a social component. It's uh, talking with people in the shop, talking with the shop owners became a completely new quality. And I really wonder what the, what of that will stay and remain in the world. And there's one question that pops up in my mind to you uh, when we see all these changes and what you described. Uh, where do you see Beacon's mind in that game? What role do you want to play with your company in the future? Yeah, yeah, I agree. It, it has a, a complete new, uh, it will generate a complete new of experiences, uh, I guess. And um, our way, you know, is to to become a standard in um, when it comes to location-based marketing because we have that kind of retail scope. We um, have a proven uh, track record in bringing benefits to to retailers, and we might you might see us also in the future in different kind of verticals, you know, like in the transportation, in hotels, um, in the industry itself. Um, because we can be implemented anywhere where is um, um, like um, a local infrastructure, you know, that you can reach out to customers via a smartphone. And um, this is where I see um, I see Beacon's mind in the future. You know, like we are building um, a big customer base, like a big client base, make our experiences, we launch new products that will bring benefits to the market. And I want us to become standard when it comes to connecting physical retail stores with their e-com and bringing benefits to to yeah to the verticals. That's where I see Beacon's mind in the in the future. That's great. As I said, um, I was working at listed companies, uh, merger acquisition, controlling, and part of that uh, was. Uh, having interviews during the budget process so and you are a listed company so uh, for the old days i would like to ask one question what are your midterm plans <laughs> yeah you know i can just drop information we we have um yeah publicly announced but um what we want to do is of course um using the the moment we have right now you know um, and benefiting by and taking advantages of the post-COVID situation. Um, and that means we want to, um, to distribute our solution on a global level and rolling out to new markets. Um, we have recently announced that we go to the Middle East uh, with an outpost that we plan to go to Asia Pacific by end of uh, 2021. And then we what then we what all we want to be also on site for for retail clients in the US by 2022, and um, these are the I would say it's not that short term because it's more midterm, but um, with that growth kind of growth strategy um, and and um, the fact that we are on site in into new markets, 
the reach will will increase and we will get um, the chance to bring the benefits of our solution in yeah in in many retail infrastructures and let them benefit um, to to cover the post or and to manage or benefit from the post COVID uh, crisis uh, properly. And that brings us to the point um, what we want to become um, the standard in in location based marketing one day. The standard in location-based marketing worldwide, globally. so globally. So you're not uh, only restricting yourself to France, Switzerland, and uh, Austria or the Dach region. You are really reaching out for the world with, yes. with your company. Yes, exactly. We grow with with clients um, into new markets, and in the future, we want to, of course, being a bit more proactively because there are many countries out there. Uh, that still not use that uh, powerful channel, mm. and it's it's our duty and pleasure to to bring them uh, the benefits from our solution into the market. Yeah, now I can make up a lot of use cases in my mind, and I'm pretty sure your technology uh, will have a, a, a great impact in that world. And uh, hearing that you are standing for growth also is very interesting for me as, uh, as somebody who might buy or buy not your your shares and for all other shareholders. Uh, that you are working on a growth strategy. And uh, this is also the, the way that uh, shareholders can benefit from your company with, uh, there is only increase in value when you grow as a company and when you don't restrict yourself to local markets. Um, so when I think uh, about the situation that uh, you will definitely become successful, I'm pretty sure about that, uh, more successful than you are. And uh, maybe... Not now, because we are not still in Austria, not allowed to meet up, but maybe in future, uh, we will also have the opportunity to meet in person. And uh, let's just imagine that at one of the events, it's, it might be a startup event, uh, where you um, have to have a speech or a keynote speech uh, on stage, and you're in a hurry to the stage. Uh, you make your way through the crowd, hopefully in future, and you feel that somebody grabs you on the shoulder and say, hey, you are Max, you're the famous entrepreneur and uh, I want to start a company. Um, can you give me one advice? And you say, hey, my friend, my friend, I have to go to the stage. I don't have time. And she says, please, just one advice. Give me one advice quickly. What yeah. would that advice be? <laughs> so uh, I'm glad that you, you asked me that question and uh, that the entrepreneur that approached me is a he, yeah? Because then I would uh, I would promptly reply that that he should always listen to his wife, you know. And if if he doesn't is married uh, so far, I would recommend him to always listen to his instinct, you know. Mm. Uh, to be honest, um, you you have to you know always listen to yourself in in the first place because there, as said in the beginning, or you, there is no one else except you um, building a company, you know, because. It's your company in the beginning, and it's driven by your passion, by your mindset, by your resilience, and all the goals you want to achieve. So, at a later stage, of course, you can you can work with investors that are acting as bearings partners and having the same goal as you have. Of course, investors always want to make more money out of it, mostly. So, uh, that's what they claim, and no, that's their job, to be honest. And I appreciate. And um, of course, never, you know, never, it's, it's, it's very philosophical, but it's true, you know, never back down, never give up, uh, let everything in flowing, you know, and be a, be a yay sayer. Yeah. 
that that doesn't mean you have to to say yes to everything but 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 try to keep everything in flow you know don't say too quickly no to something or someone because uh it could be a good idea you know later on and you would regret if you if you didn't take the advantage of it and so um that's my you know that's my my recommendation to to an entrepreneur that wants to to conquer the world or change the world with a novel company um but you know as is it true to always listen to the right people um it's it's more importantly very you know very crucial to to not listen to the to the wrong ones you know and in my experience and i did it by myself of course as well i i met a lot of you know so-called uh startup advisors or coaches out there you know that uh even read books but never act as an entrepreneur <laughs> and are in in the board of, of any kind of, of startups you know but um they don't have the experience you know uh, to 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 bring you ahead and and that's a bad thing as you mentioned before you know like advisors they're just taking money and and you're listening to them and in the end you couldn't benefit from it because they have no experiences as well or the same level as you have and so yeah always listen to the right people follow your instinct um and if there are any doubts listen to your wife yeah or partner so <laughs> That's that's a good idea. Uh, I almost uh, follow anytime. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I agree to that. This is uh, this is sound advice, um, especially what resonates with me is uh, the point where you mentioned um, to find the right people to ask for advice. And um, I think going to people who already achieved what you want to achieve, who already have built a roadmap to the goal uh, makes a huge difference compared to those who read books <laughs> about uh, what, what yes. might happen. <laughs> um, Max, I, thank you very much for this uh, interview. I think we can uh, dig in to more details in many, many topics. I really enjoy talking to you, but I'm pretty sure as a CEO, you have a lot on, uh, on your agenda. Um, thank you very much for participating in this podcast. Uh, I wish you and your team all the best and I'm looking forward to hear more success stories from your company. Thank you, Christian. It was a real pleasure and I hope the audience uh, liked the journey and um, yeah, some, some quotes from the past. <laughs> I'm absolutely sure. Have a great day. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Please, please share the podcast and make sure you've subscribed. Have a great day. Mm -hmm.